Welcome to For Your Listening Pleasure, a podcast that dives deep into important topics and fosters understanding by exploring captivating interviews with diverse guests, where we discuss how their unique experiences have shaped them into the individuals they are today. This podcast is committed to having honest and thought-provoking conversations to arouse curiosity and convey essential messages of empathy, inclusion, and diversity, one conversation at a time. I am your host, Mallory Waxman. Today on the podcast, I'm thrilled to be introducing my guest, Pepper Miller. Pepper is a seasoned market researcher and speaker, boasting over 25 years of experience as a Black American subject matter expert. In 1995, she founded the Hunter Miller Group, focusing on market research and marketing strategy. Her standout achievement was spearheading the pivotal 2008 study, Black American Today's Segmentation Study. In today's conversation, we discuss the crucial role of market research in understanding underrepresented consumer segments. Her latest book, Let Me Explain Black Again, highlights the diverse subcultures within Black America, encouraging marketers to bridge understanding gaps. Our conversation explores the impact of racial insure on Black individuals and society, stressing the importance of cultural awareness and appreciation. I hope you enjoy this insightful and impactful conversation, and please share it with your friends, family, and network. Thank you. Pepper, it's such a joy to have you on the For Your Listening Pleasure podcast. And before we really dive into your story, I just have to shout out our mutual friend, Rob Volpe. Uh, Rob introduced me to you, and I just always like to thank the individuals that lead guests my way. So thank you, Rob. Pepper, I absolutely loved your book. Let me explain Black again. I have it with me here. But as I was doing my research, what I learned was when you were about six, your parents actually moved from Chicago down to the Jim Crow South. Can you describe what that experience was like and what do you remember during that time? Thank you, Mallory, for having me. And thank you, Rob, too. Rob has done so much for me. You know, I I own my firstborn. I'm too old to have children, so we'll have to figure it out, Rob. Um, but that experience, uh, it was culture shock, even for someone at my age. It was culture shock in a good way and a bad way. So the good way was um, just being around all these black people, ha- finally having my own room, because I shared a room with my brother, um, my late brother, um, uh, And um, we lived across the street from this big field where he could play. We had a big backyard. That was a good thing. And black people were living together. Um, The downside of that, Mallory, was um, coming down and seeing coloreds not allowed, whites only, everywhere, absolutely everywhere. And seeing the Ku Ku Klux Klan having their rallies at a distance um, in that big field across the street from our house. We could see numbers of people in white robes, the the cross burnings. You can see all of that. It was at a distance, but nonetheless, you could see that. But what was particularly most hurtful was hearing the governor, uh, lieutenant governor of Georgia, which is where we moved. My father accepted a professorship in music. My father was a trained classical uh, pianist, had his undergrad in piano and master's in music theory. And he was offered a position at Albany State College. My brother and I went to the lab school. Um, So, but hearing the lieutenant governor of Georgia call some students, black students who were trying to integrate one of their universities, you, having them call them, having call them niggas. And I knew he was someone important because he was on the news. I, I had seen him on the news before, but that, it, it, it changed my life. It left an indelible mark on my life. And um, our parents had to talk to us about that and what was going on. And interestingly, my parents weren't necessarily saying a lot of derogatory, making a lot of derogatory statements about white people per se. Um, But they were, you know, they, they, they had to talk to us about that. It was the race talk that most black parents have to have with their children. And just, I might be jumping ahead, but when I think about that time, Mallory, and how 
we are undergoing, we the black community in particular, are undergoing this great erasure of our history <clears throat> because one of the reasons I'm understanding is because it upsets white children to hear this story. And I wonder why can't white parents have some version of the talk like my parents had to have with us. I mean, and that, again, it brings us back to this whole value or undervaluing of black people that was then and that I can continue to see to this day. That's one of the messages that I, re that I receive. Um, but also, it was most likely the fuel, the impetus that has given me this drive to do what I do today is to help corporations uh, and society and business leaders understand the value of black people as a people as well as a market segment. I've heard you say that you have this one distinct memory when you realize that you were black. Was that hearing the governor on TV say that? Was that that memory or was it a different one? I think it was a combination of, of all of it. I didn't think about it. I think it probably was the signage first. Colored's not allowed because we were colored back then. We weren't black. We weren't African-Americans. We were colored. Um, so I didn't think about it until I realized that there was no movie theater for us to go to, that we weren't allowed to go to the same restaurants or other public places, and that um, what was provided for us, the facilities, for example, in a bank um, or in a library, um, but those facilities for colored people were always substandard. They were always substandard. And the message was that the condition of those facilities was our fault, not the responsibility of the people who ran the facility to keep it clean, but it was our fault. And I think that's one of the messages that has happened and why black people, I think many of us don't even realize that we have this thing. I think some writers have talked about postpartum, not partum, that's for pregnant women, post. Um, like generational trauma. Yeah, almost. it's, yeah, what the, um, the soldiers. Um, PTSD. Yes, PTSD, that that is our, our drama, our trauma from, from being treated that way. And a lot of us see ourselves as less than. It's, it's kind of deeply rooted. It's something that we don't say. It's not how we live. And I, and I don't mean to imply that most Black people feel like that, but it is still in there. Um, and we could tell from the, some of the behaviors that, um, and beliefs and behaviors that we have, and we can talk about that a little behavior. But I do think it's that. Um, black people still have this cloud of stereotypes, not because we're holding on to it. It's because society is holding on to it and constantly taps into it and presents these stereotypes to us. And it has always been there ever since we were dragged to this country. And overall, it's the stereotype of less than. And so for many black people and and Hispanics and Asians um, as well, a big part of our experience is countering stereotypes. So we do these things to counter stereotypes and it's because they are constantly there. And it was my experience, first experience, having that and putting that even inside of me and fighting against it when we were living in the segregated South. You know, something you said earlier um, and I'm sorry to take it back to this, but you no talk worries. about your parents having this talk with you. And when you were saying that I was listening and a memory came up for me is I remember when my parents had to sit us down and talk about, I grew up in Highland Park where the majority of my neighbors were Jewish and having to have that conversation with us and explaining to us what my grandparents went through in the Holocaust and telling us now that you know this, you don't ever treat anyone, no matter religion, color of their skin, who they are differently. Everyone is a person. And I remember them saying that. And I think that core belief that they taught myself and my brother so young 
has stayed with us where now I'm doing a podcast, wanting to continue learning from people like you, hearing people's experiences, understanding, because I was taught it doesn't matter what someone looks like, what their sexual orientation is, what their religion is. You treat everyone with respect, kindness, and you approach them with curiosity to learn more. So it was interesting that you talked about that conversation your parents had with you. Um, I wish more parents would sit their kids down and have a conversation about being more empathetic. You know, I'm not sure (laughs) my parents had that conversation, but they lived that way. They lived this inclusive life. Um, You know, we had, we often had uh, white people come to our house for Thanksgiving dinner. My father never said they're white people. There's some friends and families coming over and boom, there they were. I think the talk for us was more about uh, reinforcing that we are good people, um, that there is nothing wrong with us, that some people don't like us because of the way we look or the color of our skin. And, you know, it was that kind of conversation initially. Um, I don't think they ever said to, I mean, I think down the road we had, you know, this conversation about being inclusive, but mostly it was the way they lived. My parents were very social people. My mother was a school teacher and my father also worked for the government. And my, after we came back to Chicago, um, my father worked for the government. He, um, And my father had this right brain, left brain thing going. He had a wonderful classical music school while he was working for the government. Um, And so the classical music school probably was predominantly more white kids than black kids. Um, And so we they had cocktail parties and it was 50 percent black people, 50 percent white people, uh, predominantly from my father's job and even some of the teachers where my where my mother taught as well as neighbors where we lived we have always lived in a black community um so they lived that inclusive way that inclusive message was passed down to me based on how they they lived um but it was more for us it was constantly talking to us about our own value that we are valuable, that there's nothing wrong with us, that we're okay. Uh, it was that, that reinforcement was very, very important to know and to do in our household. And just knowing what your journey looked like, it seems like that really did play a role in your career path, having those conversations with so many more people. I want to talk about advertising. Grew up, you went to school, but how did you find advertising? I worked at an advertising agency. I was doing some bookkeeping um, and this uh, J. Walter Thompson, um, they would have internal focus groups and I was pretty friendly and they would invite me to participate in some of their internal focus groups and I loved it. Um, And I asked to be um, if I could be a participant in the four A's program at Northwestern University, it was so wonderful. It was grueling. It was like a 13 week master's program. Oh my God, Mary it was grueling, but it was absolutely wonderful. And so I did well and I applied uh, for the research department to be in the research department as a trainee. And I didn't get the job. And, I, and I, you know, as a bookkeeper, I was, um, I started as a bookkeeper and then I kept getting little promotions. I think I was a clerk and then a bookkeeper and then I went to traffic. And um, my last job there was uh, working in office services where we were responsible for all the planning of the uh, 600 people office. Um, I was responsible for managing a $3.5 million construction and furniture budget. I was doing all types of research uh, in terms of how we move forward with travel. Should we buy our own plane? Should we have our own security um, guards? And so I was the client often in the situation working with the interior designers and architects and going to talk to uh, Delta Airlines, American Airlines, or some smaller um, 
private airlines about how this would work. And I loved it. I was always the wide girl. And how do we figure this out? And what's the alternative? And what are our options? And so when I didn't get that position, um, a girlfriend and I who worked there as well, you know, we said we need to we need to have our own business because where are we going to go? It's going to be the same thing. So we started researching business options. One of the executives um, left Jay Walter, black executives, there was only 10. um, And he heard that we, he assumed that we had a research company. We were researching business ideas, but we hadn't really formed a company. And he he left. He said, hey, I have a research project for you. Can you guys do this? And we said, absolutely. And that was the start of it. Our relationship, our partnership um, lasted only maybe a year or so after that. But I continued on with it. But when I would knock on doors or we would knock on doors to... Um, get research projects and show up in this brown skin, we often heard, we'll call you when we have a black study. We, I heard it over and over again. So black people couldn't talk to white respondents, but white respondents, but a white moderator could talk to, to black people. That was their per, you know, perception back then. And so the people that gave me opportunities, the business that gave me opportunities were the Burrell advertising, the Barbara Proctors, who's She's passed away, but her business no longer in business. Um, Jean Morris, E. Morris Communication, no longer in business. Sam Chisholm, Chisholm Mingle Group, no longer in business. But those guys provided the opportunity for me. And I focus mostly on qualitative research, conducting these focus groups and having conversations uh, and doing exploratory research. And what I was hearing was this disconnect between what black people wanted to see and how they wanted um, society and business leaders to perceive them versus what was being done. We weren't included, we weren't there. Again, it was this, this, this fight against these stereotypes, this conversation over and over and over again. And so I started going to multicultural research conferences to see what was going on And there was nobody talking about black consumers. So I would ask organizers if I could speak and they were happy to welcome me uh, to, you know, to the platform. Um, But I was a little rough, (laughs) I must say. I was a little rough. My message was uh, uh, a little bit more militant. I was finger pointing and blaming. I think a lot of what was buried inside of me from what happened to me in the South, and even as an adult being rejected to even participate in the re- full research process was coming out. Um, and I discovered that no one would talk to me after <laughs> my presentations. So, you know, I, I pulled back and had to rethink and um, my ex-husband and I, ex-ex-husband, that's a cocktail. Uh, we're still very good friends. Um, but at the time, I was like, I, I have to talk about what happened to us. I have to tell our story. I have to say slavery. I don't know what to do. And he said, just tell the truth. Just tell the truth. So that truth would be coming from our perspective. So what I do now is just tell our story. No finger pointing, but just here it is. This is who we are. This is what happened to us. Slavery was important. It's the most important insight or our history and that cultural lens is most important for understanding black people because the beliefs and behaviors, they all ladder back up to that. So we have to understand that and its impact on us and on society as well. And I learned to say slavery once and to use the word cultural lens or history or historical lens instead of slavery because some it makes some people uncomfortable but i will say it <laughs> at least one time so there's a lot of things that you just touched on that i want to dive into one is can you talk about how strategy and research and history are so intertwined you started talking a little bit at the end but i think that really level sets the conversation and will continue to build on that? Well, 
for strategy and research, research when it comes to black consumers, again, it's about understanding the why. Um, because we speak English, many business leaders tend to roll um, the black segment in with mainstream. They speak English, don't they, has been a rhetorical question that has been asked in my presence and not, but it's really a rationale for not investing in black research, black marketing, uh, and black media. Um, and so my response is, yes, we speak English, but are you talking to me? And so to understand how we are different, but not deficient is important. Um, we are taught to not talk about differences. It makes people uncomfortable. Um, people say it's rude. And as we've heard today in this climate, uh, most business leaders um, believe it's divisive. And so this whole notion of understanding why to develop a better strategy is important. The why comes from investing in research and to understanding who you are talking to and why. Black uh, Americans in particular, we're talking about them, are different from mainstream, but we're also different from each other in very meaningful ways. So in research, understanding the why and who you are really talking to is very, very important. Understanding the demographics and the psychographics, the beliefs and the behavior. So because a lot of strategists today are responsible for writing the creative strategy. And when it comes to Black consumers, I've seen them struggle uh, in terms of trying to find out the why um, in many cases, which was one of the motivations for writing the book too. So when we understand that we conduct the research and we have our whys, and then we can develop better strategies and tactics for reaching and engaging. So many clients are so focused on the reach and you can reach us but are you talking to me? Yes, I speak English. Are you talking to me? Um, and so the engaging under is about promoting positive realism. Again, helping to flip or put those stereotypes on its heel or erasing them and getting rid of them and showing us how we really are, how we really live. Most black people are good people and are doing the right thing. We have good men. We have good moms. You know, and we're not all criminals. So this whole notion of how do you um, create strategies that include positive realism is more likely to touch, move, be relatable, engage, move, and, and um, embrace your brand. And it's, it's helping brands understand this over and over again that has been a huge challenge. It, do you feel like you have to constantly disprove stereotypes? Because honestly, that seems like it would be fucking exhausting to constantly have to always do that. And the other aspect too with that is, and I've, I'm in marketing, I've heard it before, where people interchange african-americans and black and i heard you talk about that how you need to understand your segment and talk about that would you mind diving into that because i when i was doing research and i heard you say these two points i was just like you gotta be tired to constantly keep doing this and having as your book literally is called let me explain black again over and over but you continuously wake up every day and I don't want to say like do the fight, but like continue. We do. You're absolutely right. Yeah. You use the word exhausting. Um, I love being black in spite of our challenges um, and so many things that have happened to us that can sting. Something happened the other day that happened to, you know, we'll talk about that later. Um, but it is exhausting being black in America. And it is exhausting working in this industry. I love it. Um, I love the work. I love doing the exploratory research, but it is exhausting. One of the things that happens a lot of time working with a lot of businesses is that um, 
brand managers who are often our clients or even in the research department, they're there for two or three years. And so you go through this process of explaining, 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 and, and many of them get it and some of them embrace it and then they're gone and off to the next thing. They don't necessarily carry the story. It just a moment in time for them. And so I'm constantly explaining that over and over again um, until something happens. Um, something, it was, it was the Zimmerman verdict um, that the millennials had an aha moment and brands were like, oh my goodness. Um, it was, um, it wasn't even Barack Obama being elected president. Uh, I think, I wonder if some people voted for him because it made them feel good. I don't know. Um, but there was, when Barack Obama was in office, we had a little black slide again because you have this black president and we are now post-racial, so we don't even need black research, black agencies, budget, so that. And then uh, Donald Trump was elected um, president. And, and everything that was, went to hell. Well, that much. was an aha moment <laughs> for people. Uh, but when George Floyd was murdered, it was an, uh, an overdue awakening, as Time magazine called it. So it was this rush to understand black people. But I think now we're, you know, with the Supreme Court uh, court's ruling on affirmative action as, in, uh, as it relates to uh, college uh, admissions, I think we're going back the other way again. So it's a constant seesaw and up and down a roller coaster of of learning um, and explaining and explaining and explaining. The more people, that's why I appreciate people like you and Rob, the more people who are doing this and invite us, me and others like me to tell our story is so important to, to your audience. And it's not meant to be a downer by any chance, but it's a huge opportunity. It's a huge opportunity to come together to learn, to um, enhance your own culture, to help us understand you more. It's, it's a huge opportunity. Uh, and that's what people don't get. But most people, um, because it makes them feel uncomfortable, they shy away. So let's talk about 2020. I am sure your phone was ringing oh. off the hook. Can you talk to us about what you heard? Some of these conversations, I can't even imagine. And <laughs> how you dealt with some companies that probably thought they were being progressive, probably thought they mm -hmm. were providing the safe atmosphere for employees that were either black or individuals of color because I will say reading your book I did and this is on me did not realize how with segmentation especially marketing you have to really identify whether you're talking because people interchange black people of color african-american but they're all so different and that shows that you don't understand the individual identity so I appreciated you talking about that because as someone in marketing, I can then share it. Absolutely. It, you know, the people that called were very humbled. They were. And I, I absolutely didn't give them a hard time. I was really grateful that they had a moment. Um, most of the people were research people. Some were um, diversity leaders. And some were senior people in, in research. Um, some talked about being embarrassed. <laughs> Again, it was this humbling moment, but it was, what was interesting was there were several brands, big brands that had sizable, um, audiences of black people that had never conducted any research. That was a little, you know, unnerving to hear. But again, I was grateful that they had finally come to the table and wanted to do something and wanted to learn. Um, I remember talking to some, and even after going through my Black Insights presentation, which is wonderful, I love 
I love giving it. Again, it's not finger pointing, but it's so insightful. Here's the black commercial. Here's the main screen commercial for the same brand and what we see, what we look for. Um, here's the here's the blind spots, you know, here's the seven blind spots um, that that uh, many uh, brands aren't aware of. So it was um, I was very grateful. I was busy. I was like, oh, my God, I was busy with work. I was busy with meetings. I was busy talking to people and explaining kind of like what I what we're doing now it was like a mini podcasts <laughs> for a lot of these for a lot of these brands that um that came to the the table. So, and I'm hoping the ones that came to the table and that were very sincere about understanding how the segment, how black people are different but not deficient, hopefully they will remember that and carry that, um, carry that with them. But I was not angry. Um, I was, you know, it was like, it's about time guys, but I was, <laughs> I was not, I was not angry. But what is a little disconcerting too is, so after all those people came to the table, what's happening? Now what? Now what? I think a lot of these brands wrote checks to historically black colleges and universities. Um, and I'm happy to see, for example, a lot of black artists and black uh, cultural organizations that are doing so much more because a lot of companies have sponsored them and they're getting the word. That's been really, really good to see a lot of underserved segments, artists, organizations, nonprofits, finally uh, having some money to do the work that they um, have been organized to do. And that's been really good. But I, I, I don't see people carrying forth the message like what you're doing, Mallory, that's a little disappointing. I think it's really hard when the system is so broken and people are just trying to put band-aids on it instead of feeling like we got to just blow it up and build from scratch. No one's willing to admit it. But I think um, underrepresented groups within this country are starting to really feel that we can talk, you can give presentations, you can show people Sure, you can write a check, but unless you really rebuild from the bottom up, we're just putting band-aids on it. But I appreciate all the work that you're doing, even if you're giving the same talk a hundred times a year, <laughs> you hope that it lands somewhere and that maybe the people who either listen to this episode or in that room after the conversation go and tell five more people about it. Because exactly. that's how really, you know, well, and that's threads. how I be here with you because of Rob and, yeah. you know, and, and I really appreciate this. And I've done a lot of podcasts with um, black businesses and media companies as well as non-black as well. So I really appreciate this so much. And to know that there are people like you that are, Mallory, you're, you're brave, especially in this climate you are. Um, and I had to get some acceptance, too, after the Supreme Court ruling. I I am a pretty upbeat person, and I'm optimistic. Um, but after that ruling, I think I stayed in the bed and watched Netflix all day I, and wrote in my journal, uh, trying to figure it out. It was just knocked the wind out of me. But what I learned, I had to get some acceptance that I can't fix it. And I didn't want this to be about my ego, that you have to fix this, Pepper Miller. Um, and I was like, but I can't fix this. I can't fix this. So I have to get some acceptance and that I won't see the equality and the equity that I've been striving for in so many industries and having people understand us and welcome us. I'm not going to see that in my lifetime. Got acceptance for that. And then I had to be grateful. Um, I had just, I was late coming to the uh, party when it comes to when it came to reading uh, Isabel Wilkerson's book, uh, The Warmth of Other Suns, I don't know if you've heard of it. And uh, there's another book that she's written, Cass. So The Warmth of Other Suns is this epic um, story. Actually, it's a, a true story about the black migration. It took her 15 years, I believe, to write it. And she interviewed three people, 
um, one guy was George, um, Ida May, and Robert. And they were, one was from, migrated from, they, from the 30s, one from the 50s, 40s, one from the 40s and one from the 50s. And so she told their story um, about what happened to them, being a sharecropper and not, you know, and having to sneak out of the South to come to the North or maybe it was the West or, or the Northeast uh, and how they had such hope and they were looking for so many opportunities and it didn't happen for them. And I realized that I'm standing on their shoulders. And Oprah Winfrey talks about too, about how we need to be, she talked about how she was grateful to be a free black woman in America. And I think about that too, how I can be on this podcast and tell this story with you, a white woman, you know, how I can do that. So I'm standing on their shoulders. So my second point was gratitude. So, you know, you know, having acceptance, I couldn't fix it. Having gratitude that I'm standing on the shoulders of those who came before me. And then to understand that whatever I do, I'm leaving a legacy for the next ones. I'm leaving this legacy. So I met a woman recently who is a market researcher, and she's essentially kind of doing the same thing I'm doing, talking, putting the race story out there and racism and talking about it and, and using it in her work, but helping clients to understand um, the Black story and coming up with a process, a research process that not only use that only uses the research process, maybe it's focus groups or quantitative, but then taking it a step further and how does this align with your strategy and helping them align that with their strategy and and what do you know about this target before then? And what we, I mean, just this woman is amazing. And so I wanna do everything I can to, uh, to help her. Her name is Dawn Carr, by the way. Um, so, I was delighted to find her on LinkedIn, to meet her, to see some of the articles that she's written, to understand the work that she's done, and to feel good that, you know, she's reached out, to, well, I reached out to her, she reached out back to me, and that this legacy of telling our truth and telling our story in the midst of, of um, this great erasure of our history it's still going to happen. And I think one of the other things too is that the younger people are unapologetically black and they are caring less about what society thinks of them. I came along where, you know, the white man's ice was colder, you know, we need their approval. Um, we do need to partner with some of these big businesses. They have the money and they, you know, they have the power, but we can do more with each other. That's one of the things that's happening with, with George Floyd. And I think that's a, that's a good thing. And I think that's one of the things that affirmative, they're, they're saying about affirmative action that you don't need our help. You need to just have your act together. But when you've been denied, <laughs> I mean, people just don't even understand how we couldn't, we were, we were denied the opportunity to read and write and we didn't have the same opportunities for being promoted with our peers, our white peers. And um, I mean, all of these things, all of us have stories like this. So we're behind because we're supposed to be behind. And we want to tell that story. We want equality. We don't want a handout. We just, we want a level playing field. And I don't know if that's ever going to happen, um, you know, in this lifetime. But at the same time, how about continuing to reach back and pull one up and pull one up and pull one up and pull two up? And since George Floyd's murder, we've been seeing more and more people supporting black businesses. It's been wonderful. I can't tell you how many emails I get asking me about you know, do you know somebody black that can do X, Y, Z? Or what are the black restaurants? I think they're starting to list them. I think I live in, oh, we both live in Chicago. And I think in Chicago Magazine has listed them. Um, for example, um, my little cousin from Charlotte, North Carolina, she's a millennial, came with her girlfriends and they wanted to see more black stuff. I loved it. 
because that's one of the things that we have to do is to keep our story alive and support each other's businesses. That's what we had to do during segregation. And actually, we were doing just fine because we lived together. The doctor lived next door. The cleaning lady lived over here. The military guy lived over there. Um, integration, in a way, really did hurt us. So going back to that philosophy of not um, not being segregated per se, but supporting each other has, you know, kind of taken on um, this this idea and this practice, and that's that's been really really good. So. What I found really interesting when I was doing some research is all the focus groups that you have worked on or presented to, and you start to realize that Black individuals never were ever part of an all-Black focus group. And you would ask people, have you been part of focus groups? Yes. And then you said, have you ever been part of one that's all-Black? And no one could say that. And so- what you start to do is ask them and invite them to bring their whole selves to this focus group. And that you said in all your years doing these focus groups, you never had people say that they've been in an entirely black focus group. But I think what's so interesting is I know I'm guilty of this. When I, when you're in a group, that group mentality, you don't want to be the odd one out. The only way I can think of is if I'm in a meeting with all men and I'm a female, I might have an idea, but I don't want them to be like, of course, that's her idea because she's a female. So if there's only one or two black individuals in a focus group, they're not really bringing their whole self. Therefore, the company that you're doing this focus group for isn't going to understand how to hit those consumers or clients. Can you talk about what that meant for you to ask that question and probably see everyone's faces kind of go dumbfounded. Mallory, bless you for reading the book. Great questions. I love you, Mallory. Good girl. Good girl. Yes, it's a practice that happened more than 20 years ago when uh, respondents were exiting the group. And it happened a few times where people said, what is this about? Why is it an all-Black group? Um, uh, Are they singling us out for a reason? Or I really wanted to talk about something a little bit more, but I didn't know what was going on here. So, and I realized to your point that black people tell the truth, but they they don't tell the whole truth. So for 20 plus years, that's what I do. And I, and I talk to clients about this beforehand because the introduction in the focus group is like a throwaway. But for black groups, and I think other ethnic or multicultural groups, we need a little bit more time in the introduction. We really do. So I started asking people to your point, you know, how many people have been in a black, I mean, to this day, I get the same answer. Number of people have been in a focus group, hands go up. Number of people in a black group, no hands go up. I just did some groups too of last week, same thing. I do it in every single group. Because what happens is black people and other people of color are primarily interviewed by, uh, recruited by someone white. They're They're greeted in person or virtually by someone white or that's not of their Uh, ethnic group, and they have participated in enough focus groups to believe that they're being observed by people who don't look like them. So they temper their their conversation. So I talk to them about sitting, um, you know, we're just imagine we're at Thanksgiving and we're having this great meal in the dining room with everyone. And then some of us move into the kitchen. Uh, because we're going to have some dessert in the kitchen. And what are we going to have? And people might say uh, sweet potato pie, peach cobbler, blueberry cobbler, desserts that are more linked with our culture. And then I tell them, I want that conversation, guys. And they know exactly what I'm talking about. But I do tell them if you, so what that looks like is you might say, hey, Pepper, as a black person, I feel like this. As a black man, I feel like this. And I tell them you don't have to because it's all black people here. I'm not saying you have to do that, but as we say in the black community, as the spirit moves you, please feel free to do so. That is not leading. It's an invitation. 
It's an honest invitation to be yourself and to bring your whole self to the table. So that's something that I do and it's important. Um, I think only one client, I think, didn't didn't like that, didn't like me talking and sharing about how black people were different. That was last year and I got, I got fired. <laughs> Never happened to me before, but eh, it, you know, it happened. sounds like some internal trauma they haven't worked through or yeah, something. I think that this triggered. particular company were, um, they were big, big Trump supporters. So it's a, a, a big, uh, it's a big brand, but I, yeah. you know, I think that was part of it. Um, the, president of the company was a Trump supporter. And as they say, the fish stinks at the head and some of that trickled down. So, but it was fine. The universe is kind. (laughs) I want to be really mindful of time, but I honestly feel like we just hit the tip of the iceberg in this conversation. So my hope is that, you know, you can always come on. I would love to have several more episodes as we continue this conversation, because it's really not just a one and done. It's a learning and a continuing opening this and maybe we'll do a joint episode with Rob to talk oh, about God, from like would... all different perspectives. I'll make that happen. That would sure. be wonderful. He and I have been talking about doing something together because we were on a panel together because he's got, um, tell me more about that, mm-hmm. that his book about empathy, which I have his five steps to getting to empathy in my book because that's one of the blind spots and Rob and I played off so well we were on a panel together and I was like gee we need to we need to take this on the road we'll we'll take we'll take it to the podcast I'll send an email to both of you we'll set that up you Um, are the best oh well thank you well just I want everyone to go and buy your book I'm going to put the link to it in this episode show notes it was so insightful and I think that it opens the door to having some tough conversations, but really allowing you to understand other people's perspectives and then how you can show up to be better in yes. today's world. I end every episode with the final three questions. And the first question is, if you had a quote or a mantra that you live by, what would that be? Um, probably Eleanor Roosevelt's. Uh, I used to keep it... Um a sticky of it on my wall with a push pin. And sometimes I print it out bigger and put it in, but it's, you must do the thing you think you cannot do. Cause like, you know, those days where it's like, I, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? And that could be with anything, but I look at that quote and you know, it's that suck it up moment. <laughs> so you must do the thing you think you cannot do. I love that quote. I think that's very fitting for this conversation. The second question is, if you could relive any one day, which day would you choose? So many. My Tina Turner concert in New York, being in Italy with my dad, my late father. We're in Florence, Italy, sitting at a bistro. Oh, my God, that was so good. I, you know, I felt so good. But from a business standpoint, too, I think it was... Mark Pritchard is the chief global officer at Procter & Gamble and invited me to speak at an event, an ter- internal event they had. It was called Stepping Up to African Americans because they had lost a lot of black um, customers, I think because they had embraced total market, I think. I'm pretty sure they did, and I believe that's why they lost, and I might be talking too much. Maybe I shouldn't say that. But anyway, they invited me to speak, uh, and it was like 500 brand managers. It was in this room. And I had spoken at Procter and Gamble many times, but not in that room with all the walnut. And my goodness, I had never been in that auditorium. But Soledad O'Brien also spoke too. So I'm in the green room with Soledad O'Brien, the two of us. She comes in, I say hi, because she's, you know, she's on the panel. We're both uh, speakers and we're both in the in the green room and she's making notes. And then they, you know, she's she's doing her speech on a, a speech on a legal pad. They come and get us. Um, they told me in the beginning, you have 40 minutes and 30 minutes. And they said, Pepper, you've got 20 minutes to speak. I mean, this, this was way ahead of our speaking time. So I did. And I'm rehearsing and rehearsing and I rehearsing at home and I'm forgetting stuff. I'm writing things down on the card. I'm like, oh, my God, I suck. This is terrible. And so I um, I was like, I'll it is what it is. So Soledad and I go out and I'm there the half a day with the president of Procter & Gamble, David Taylor, sitting next to him, me, Soledad, Mark Pritchard, 
uh, you know, just the whole day. I get up when it's my turn to speak, and I was amazing. That's the best presentation I ever get. I did it like a TED Talk. And one of the things that I did was to just slow down. I watched a, a speech that Barack Obama did, and he was very deliberate speaker with his words. He was very thoughtful, but he stopped and paused. You got to pause, and I don't think I did that enough here. <laughs> But you got to pause to get people to absorb and understand what you're thinking. Then you go to the next thing. And that's what I did. And the the audience was like biting their nails. Mark Pritchett was like, he started calling me buddy. And I have a relationship with him now. He was supposed to write the forward for the book. I sent him the book. He said, Pepper, I want to help. I'm just busy, but I want to help you. So I'm just waiting for that. Soledad was like, oh, my God. I mean... It was, that was. You killed it. I freaking killed it. I love it. I killed it. But I talked about these most important things. And that was in 2016, not these ideas, the blind spots and stuff were in there. But I talked about the history and I talked about, and I had a little humor, uh, you know, humor in there. How, you know, people see black people doing this and how black people are bungee jumping for God's sakes, you know, so that was, so it was light, but it was on the money and people were like, all the executives were in front, the EVPs. And they were like, they came and shook my hand. Like I've never heard anything like that in my life. So my presentation, my hour long or 45 minute long black uh, insights presentation is like that, but that was a really good day. That was a really good day. I love hearing that because I can picture it just like, and I know how nervous it is when you're (laughs) giving a presentation and something that's really personal and you want it to hit right and you're with all these people. And when you know you just knocked it out of the park, there's something better for sure. So those me writing on the index cards and practicing and not getting it right and not getting it right, but it was, it went in. It Mm -hmm. still went in. So it was good. The final question is, if you had a theme song that played every time you walked into a room, which song would you choose? There's so many, but I did send you my, the song. It's like Frankie Beverly and Mays feeling that feeling. And one of the reasons is in Chicago, well, it's nationwide, but there's something that I love doing is Chicago style stepping. It's like a stylized swing dance and it's eight counts. And, you know, you got to have a little swag with that. So I tend to like music that's like that. So I'm looking for like my songs that I like. There's so many. But Frankie Beverly and Mays, I tend to be old school. They got the right stepping music beat. And the and that's a good uh, upbeat song. But I like so many songs with the beat. But I really like I, I like that. When I hear that, I'm like, let's go. Let's go. I'm ready to I'm ready to go. I'm ready to step, as we say. So that's a good one for me. Well, I'm going to add that to the For Your Listening Pleasure theme song playlist on Spotify so listeners can hear your theme song along with everyone else's. <laughs> and Pepper, this has been such a joy. I like I would love to take you to lunch. We are both in Chicago. Let's get together oh, yes, outside of the Zoom era. Absolutely. And I will get that um, episode together with you and Rob for sure. Thank you so much, Mallory. And I'd love to have lunch with you because we had started a little conversation. I wanted to see how you were doing with that. And I want to share something with you that happened with me lately, too. I I want to talk to you. Yeah, we'll get together. (laughs) 